1: To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest.
2: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Uh, The current effort of the foundation, and a quick note, is that we're working on our anxiety and depression uh, massive literature overview, and the goal is to create uh, an AI-based coach for people that are suffering from anxiety and depression. So to find out more, go to org. And today my guest is uh, Rachel Sidaway. Uh, she's the author of The Impossible series. We're going to talk about her own struggles with uh, mental health. And uh, her website is animpossiblelife.com. So Rachel, thanks for coming. How are you doing?
3: Good. Thank you for having me.
2: If you would, tell me a bit about your background and how you got uh, involved in mental health issues.
3: Yeah. So... The first book I wrote is called An Impossible Life, and it debuts my mom's life. She's bipolar. She's attempted suicide. My grandpa died from suicide. And it goes through her journey of not wanting to accept she had a mental illness because the stigmas were so powerful they kept her from getting the help she needed, to how she navigated her illness and what helped her in the end and she's living a beautiful life now. So it all kind of started with my mom and how she has her own struggles but was able to be a victor of them and I was like that's so inspiring. That's what we need. So I wrote her life story.
2: Oh, that's that's very cool. What was the reaction to that to that book when people read it? What kind of feedback did you get?
3: Oh my gosh, the reaction was overwhelming. I knew there were a lot of people with mental health struggles, but I didn't realize what a need books like that were for people. We got flooded with emails just asking more about, you know, what medicine, what therapy worked for her or how um, inspirational it was to know that this isn't a life sentence. Because with a lot of mental illnesses, it's not like you ever cure it. It's more, you manage it, you manage it for the rest of your life. And that can feel very daunting if you don't have a good role model to show you, Hey, it's possible. You can still have a great life, even though you're kind of dealing with a chronic illness.
2: But was she able to get significant help and become stable over her time or you know, what happened with was it as a quick summary?
3: Yeah. So after she attempted suicide, my dad was going to divorce her and She kind of pulled her life together and found DBT therapy, which is dialectical behavioral therapy, and that therapy saved her life. It's all skill-based. It's not talk therapy. It's how do you get real-life skills to manage relationships, emotions, and trauma. And so through that therapy and having the right medication, she was able to become an independent functioning person.
2: How is a uh, dialectical uh, therapy different from cognitive behavioral therapy?
3: They're very similar, very similar. Um, she tried cognitive behavioral therapy, but she liked DB. She liked behavioral therapy better. It kind of goes more into interpersonal skills and it goes more, I don't know. It's a little more like mindfulness and there's a year long class you can do where you can sign up for the program and it's a whole year and you have a coach that's for 24 hours. You can call them at any time, day or night. So that way when you're in the middle of trauma, they can help you instead of after (laughs) when you've already been explosive or whatever. Um, You don't have to call and talk about it. You can call them in the moment and say, Hey, how do I navigate these huge feelings I'm having?
2: Oh, that's, that's very cool. It's helpful. what What has your journey been like like how have you been affected by your mom and did you have you know deal with any depression anxiety et cetera yourself
3: yeah so i I have some depression and anxiety, and I feel like the best things that have helped me are also d b t skills um but having a mom who is bipolar de i mean when you're a kid, all you know is um your life and you just think that's normal. But as I got older, I realized, wow, I I've picked up some bad habits from my mom (laughs) or good habits, too. And so I actually just wrote a book called An Impossible Childhood, and that one will be coming out this year. But it kind of shows the struggles that a kid goes through of having to be a caretaker for their parent. For example, my mom self-harmed. And at eight years old, I was hiding the knives in the house because I didn't want her to find them. Or, um, when she had meltdowns, I was kind of always looking out for her and making sure that she was emotionally stable. And that kind of, um, makes you feel like they're your responsibility. So if they try to commit suicide or if they, um, do something drastic like that, you feel like, oh my gosh, I wasn't, I wasn't a good enough help when really, um, they need professional help, no family member or friend. Could ever be in charge of someone's mental health. It's too big for one person.
2: Oh, really? What what good things came out of it, though? You mentioned there was some good.
3: Oh, yeah. I feel like I had a very bright and vivacious childhood because of my mom's mania. She would bring the zoo to our house, and she, like, I don't even know how she did it. She hired a zoo, a zoo mobile, to come drive to our house, and they brought all the animals, and we had like our own private. Tour of all these like chinchillas and lizards. And she was just kind of bigger than life. So a lot of times we would have parties for no reason at our house, or she was just very fun, very alive. And so it was kind of the typical two extremes with her bipolar disorder. She was either depressed in bed or she was the life of the party. And I have so many good memories with her just keeping us engaged in life. And we were didn't watch a lot of TV. We were constantly doing activities with her. And so I feel like that was a huge bonus from her illness
2: as well. Did you have to be watchful and monitor her mood all the time to see which, which mom you were getting?
3: Yeah, you would kind of wake up in the morning and go, okay, you know, let's read some signs. Which mom is it today? And it, it could even change in the middle of the day. You could be having a party and then someone says something and it triggers her and she's in the closet crying the rest of the day. So, it was a little unpredictable, but it makes it so you're at least I was able to be very flexible. I was like I was able to learn how to just go with the flow.
2: What was it like when you were older when you were like let's say 16, 17, 18 maybe thinking about leaving the house? I mean, were there any times where it was particularly difficult or, you know, even though it was hard, you gained new insights?
3: Yeah, as I got older, I started to realize more what my mom was going through and it made me really sad to realize how bad she was hurting. You know, her physical pain was very real. And as a kid, I was kind of aware of it, but I didn't really know what that meant. And as I got older and I started getting ready to leave the house and go to college, I worried about her. I was like, that's, that's a lot for her to carry, but she's always been my best friend. We talk every day. And so. As an adult, I also had to learn how to have an adult relationship with her where she wasn't, I didn't have to be her caretaker all the time. I had to learn how to let her be an adult so I could be an adult and have my own life.
2: Did your mom realize what was going on with her? Maybe it's a stupid question, but I mean, was she aware and what were her reflections on it?
1: Before we continue... the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in the ability to request specific topics or guests and more visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show.
3: She was not aware until she was probably in her 30, late thirties. She got diagnosed, but yeah, it took her a while. Her dad was bipolar, but she just refused to believe that it, that she would ever be bipolar too so she really resisted a diagnosis for a while and just assumed her life was the problem my dad didn't make enough money or we didn't live in the right state or her marriage was just bad or she would come up with these reasons why her life was hard when really it had nothing to do with her circumstances she had a great life she just had a mental illness and when she finally accepted that it made everyone's life better because then she stopped blaming it on
2: everyone else. Did she grieve herself or her mental state when she was diagnosed? Like, how did she react?
3: Yeah, she definitely grieved for a while. She still sometimes will say things like, my 20-year-old self is still pissed (laughs) about the life I have. Because when she was 20, she, like most of us, we had, you know, she had dreams of, you know, being a soccer mom or traveling and her life just wasn't that. She was, you know, in bed a lot more or struggling to live a lot more. And so she kind of grieves the fact that she has a mental illness, but she's gotten a lot better at just radical acceptance, which is something DBT teaches where you just radically accept what is knowing you can't change it and it kind of helps you embrace your life instead of resist it.
2: So what kind of uh, tools or understandings did you get, you know, again, living with her and dealing with your own situation that you put into your book?
3: Yeah, so um what's very common when you're in a close relationship with someone with a severe mental illness is it's hard to know what is them and what is the illness. You know, when do you put their feet to the fire and say, "Hey, what you did was really messed up?" and when do you say, "Oh, they have a mental illness, they couldn't control it. So I should just let it go. And that's really a tough call to make, whether you're married to them or best friends with them or their daughter. And so the book kind of goes through different scenarios where I either, you know, got it wrong. I, you know, was too hard on her and it was not her fault. Her illness really was making it so she couldn't control certain behaviors. But then it also shows moments where you know, I got it right, or maybe was too passive with her. And I should have, you know, held her feet to the fire a little more. So having boundaries with someone and knowing what's them and what's the illness is a really tricky balance. And so I tried my best in the book to show, you know, how navigating that can look in a successful and not successful way.
2: How does the person themselves discern that, because it seems like, That'd be a very important thing for the person themselves to be like, okay, this is my problem or whatever you want to call it. This is not me right now. It's affecting me, but it's not me. So I shouldn't say bad things to myself, for instance.
3: Yeah. Oh, totally. A lot of people with mental illness believe it's like a personal flaw. You know, they're embarrassed that they have it or... They think this is like a personality flaw. And the biggest thing I could ever say to anyone with a mental illness is it has nothing to do with your personality, has nothing to do with who you are as a person. It's an illness like any other illness. Like if you're a diabetic or have cancer, you know, you don't say I am cancer or I am diabetes. You just say I have cancer. And so with my mom's bipolar, she often says I have bipolar disorder instead of I am bipolar because it just helps her separate herself from the illness and realize this isn't me. This is just something I'm managing with medicine and therapy, but I'll still have flare-ups just like someone who's diligent with chemotherapy might still have flare-ups with their cancer and you can't blame them for that.
0: If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So what would
2: happen if you would under or overreact inappropriately you know, when you misgage what's going on, for instance, with your mom, like, what would be the consequence of that?
3: Yeah, so she has emotional regulation <laughs> issues, which um, means she really can't rein it in. Like, if she gets triggered or hurt, it's she's, like, blowing the house up. So if I ever misgaged and was too hard on her, it either sent her straight to suicidal thoughts, where she'd be like, well, I'm just going to kill myself because... I can't do anything right. And you're pushing me to the edge and I'm trying so hard. And if I'm not able to do enough, or if this isn't enough, then I just should die because your life would be better without me. And it's like, Whoa, we were just fighting about where to eat. Like (laughs) I didn't like, you don't need to kill yourself over that. Um, but then other times it would be like, you're in the grocery store and she'll just start throwing things or yelling and and it's just like she's ready to have a fight right there right now in front of anyone and it can be kind of embarrassing so the best way to reel it back is always with love so I've learned I've learned through many trial and errors that I don't I really shouldn't like push further and be like well you I you don't understand or I didn't mean it like that it's more just like, Hey, I love you. I messed up. I'm sorry. I see how hard you're trying. I shouldn't have said that. My bad. Like you just kind of have to totally backpedal and be soft and kind and compassionate and be like, you are going through a lot. I, you know, I should have been kinder. I was just going to say, and then usually she's able to regulate her emotions a little better after that.
2: I can see that. Yeah. Apologizing and being that way. Okay. But how do you get Confrontational without, you know, like for instance, like your mom or whoever blowing up and being like, all right, that's it. And saying the same thing they would say, you know, I'm going to kill myself or I'm no good, that kind of thing. How do you confront someone yet still keep them from that?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. So I think everyone's personalities are different. So I'm sure for everyone, it's a little different. But I've noticed like I can't yell, I can get firm, but I can't yell. She's very sensitive to yelling. So it's usually you start from a place of love, but you can still be very firm. So I usually start with things like I see, like, for example, my mom once tried to like help me with my school major and she kind of was taking over my life. She didn't let me make my own decisions. I wanted to, you know, plan my own college semester and she was calling professors as me saying, hi, I'm Rachel. I need to know this and this and this. And and anyway, it really bothered me because I'm like, I am old enough to do this myself. You don't need to do this. So I approached her and I was just like, Hey, I know you want to help. I know you care about my education more than anyone. And that's why you're doing this. And you love your children and you want me to have the best education possible but I need to do this myself. I need to learn how to fail on my own. If I, you know, take the wrong class or if my semester isn't strategically planned out the way you think it should be, I need this to be my own. And I was very firm with her that I don't want you calling people as me. I want I want to call people as me. And she was able to listen to it and hear it um, because I didn't blow up at her. Instead of me just saying, You're taking over my life and you shouldn't call people as me. You're so weird. You can't do that. It was more of like, I see why you're doing this. I see your intentions are good, but the way you're um executing it is not helpful. And so she was able to kind of reel it in and
2: apologize. It sounds like it would be incredibly tiring, though, for someone to have the patience of of Job and to always be the one to de-escalate things. Like, I don't know, does that wear on you or what advice do you have?
3: Yeah, so my dad often talks about this in his book, An Impossible Wife, which is coming out on the 28th, but he calls it compassion fatigue because anytime you fall short on being patient enough or you know, de-escalating it the right way, if you just are too tired to do it all the way through properly, then you get in trouble because then, you know, they, their emotions get too big and they're like, you don't have enough compassion. You don't, you know, you're not patient enough. You're not compassionate enough because I'm suffering and I'm in so much pain. How can you not be kinder to me? And my dad often calls it compassion fatigue because he's like, I am compassionate. But when you live with someone every day, I mean, there's only so many times that you can, you know, I don't know, feel that deep compassion for them without getting a little exhausted and being like, okay, but I also just need to be able to get mad at you sometimes because I'm human. And that doesn't mean I don't see that you're in pain. It just means I'm tired and I got upset. And so he, he's very patient though. He's very good at being married to a mentally ill person but I think it definitely takes a certain kind you have to be very patient and you have to you know have some boundaries so that way you don't get too worn out
2: I don't know depending on the relationship like you know you're the the child of someone that has this issue if you're the husband or the wife is a lot harder because it's a different kind of relationship like like which relationships have you I'm sure they all have their own challenges but Have you identified any that are harder than others because of the nature of it?
3: Yeah, I think the more love my mom requires from you, the more your words hurt or help. So there's been a lot of times, you know, my dad said the wrong thing. And because he is her husband, you know, the person that should love her more than anyone, she gets a lot more upset at him when he does something wrong than if I were to do something wrong. And so she'll call me a lot of the times, in between a fight they're having and be like, I can't believe your dad said this. I just need to divorce him. He's so, you know, hurtful or whatever. Where if my brothers had said the exact same thing, she would have been fine with it. So depending on the relationship you have with her or with a mentally ill person, I do think it changes the weight of how you react to them. And the words you say to them it can mean more or less.
2: Is it is it good to periodically like let them explode? in a controlled environment, does that kind of reduce the likelihood of a future explosion or does that make it more likely there'll be a future explosion?
3: I think with things that are like non-negotiables. Like my mom spent $150,000 in three months um, on just crap. And she was in a mania. She was overspending. And it's like, obviously that's something where it doesn't really matter if they blow up. You can't let them keep doing that. Like they will make you go bankrupt, you know? So my dad, yeah, he just let her explode. He basically said, this isn't okay. I'm getting rid of your credit cards. Like, this is dangerous. You're going to bankrupt the family. I can't have you do this. And she totally blew up. But at the same time, it had to be stopped. So you just kind of let them blow up, but then put measures in place so it can't happen again.
2: I mean, how do you prevent yourself from getting tired in a relationship like this? You know, like, what if you didn't do anything wrong and you're having to apologize just to keep the peace and you're just tired of it? Like, what do you do?
3: Yeah, I... Usually, we'll just say, like, like if it's on the phone, it's like, I love you, but I'm busy. I got to go. And you just, like, take a day or two just to yourself. If it's in person, you could even just be like, hey, I am too tired to have this conversation right now. Can we have it another time? And then you can try to go off and do something else. But, yeah, it's tricky. It's tricky, especially if you're a family member because usually you're living under one roof. And it's a little harder to just, you know cancel lunch with a friend or something because it's like you're living together it's not just a friendship
2: i mean in these kind of relationships like do they do they tend to be cyclical like for every month so-and-so is gonna have an issue that like you can tell you know like do is, is the mental illness manifestation a regular thing or is it totally unpredictable can you make it more predictable somehow with some level of therapy like what can you do
3: Yeah. So I think family therapy is super crucial because if only the mentally ill person is getting skills to get better, um, sometimes the family can accidentally be using old habits that keep them sick. So my whole family has gone to therapy and like, we're very aware of what my mom's working on, what we need to work on and how we can kind of keep her on track. And I think that's super helpful to like have everyone on board and on the same plan. As far as being able to predict explosions, I'd say everyone has triggers and you kind of know like, oh, if you bring up these three things, you know, it will always turn into a, a drag out fight. But is, but other than that, it is a little random. You know, it can be like a whole month of totally fine and then randomly one day not fine, but then the next day is. So at least that's been my experience. It's a little random.
2: I mean, what can you do, though? Like, do you you observe that people that have mental issues, do they deliver, do they somehow know their triggers and bring them up and cause fights? Or is it really truly just they're at the mercy of their condition and they don't even know what triggers them and they're just kind of in this state of reactivity?
3: It depends on the person. I would say most times people know what their triggers are. And so in that way, it's they kind of have to be responsible to either stay out of situations that would bring up those triggers. But then it's kind of also the family's responsibility to make sure you don't, you know, bring them up. Also, it's like you kind of know you just you don't do that. Like with my mom spending, spending is a trigger for her. So she's very sensitive about it. And so we try not to ever mention the fact that she has a spending problem because if she's not having the problem currently, we don't need her to emotionally feel wounded again about it. But yeah.
2: What do you do so that you're not walking on eggshells with somebody and the relationship is so fragile and it's 100% on you to manage the person's, you know, don't trigger them, don't say this, that, even though they did this thing that you don't like, you can't say anything about it. You have to apologize when you don't really feel like it. Like, you know, how do you manage that kind of dynamic?
3: Yeah, I do think honesty is important. So I think, I think everyone wants an honest, open relationship, even if they have a mental illness and are emotionally vulnerable to certain topics. I think, you know, you can still be honest with someone without being hurtful. So you can say, you know, you can always start with, I love you. And then go into, and because I love you, I want a good relationship with you. And for me, a good relationship would look more like this. And then you can kind of work on it together. Because my mom is very receptive to feedback as far as, like, if she's doing something that's hurting the relationship, she does want to know. And if you bring it up to her in the right way, she'll work on it and totally change and make it, you know, a better relationship for both of you. So I don't think you should have to hide things that bother you. It's more just being very aware that you might have to address them in a much softer way. Um, where maybe with someone else you could be more abrasive or frustrated and it would be fine with some people. You just have to be a lot softer, but you can still get your honest point across.
2: What seems to help the most is it, you mentioned family therapy, which is good. Um, What else seems to be very helpful? You know, medication is helpful. Is it dialectic behavioral therapy is the most helpful? Like what what have you found works and what doesn't?
3: Yeah. What I found that works the best is having dialectical, but like have dialectical behavior therapy, be a part of like day-to-day life medicine. You can't do anything without medicine if you're severely mentally ill. And then, yeah, like a support group, whether that's your family or your friends, but kind of having those three things really makes a difference. And if you have one but not the other two, it can, it can be really hard.
2: What's the future of people with these mental conditions, understanding themselves, helping themselves, family members, interacting with these people? Like what do you see as new or upcoming that you think will be helpful?
3: Yeah, I think it's them knowing that they're not alone. That there are people with mental illnesses all around them functioning, holding down jobs, having successful marriages, and then for family members to know that as well. Because a lot of times family members and friends feel hopeless. They're like, I don't see how this could get better. I don't see how they'll ever be able to be independent and take responsibility. And just knowing there are people out there doing it, and the way they're doing it is through therapy, medicine, and and a good support group kind of gives you hope that okay, if I just work on this long enough, I think I could have the same results.
2: What other projects do you have in the works? You, know, you you've got this book out. How do you want to impact the, you know, like the mental health community? What are you doing?
3: Yeah, so currently I'm a part of a book club at the world's largest women's prison in California. And we hold mental health discussions there. Right now, I'm pregnant, so I wasn't able to go, but my mom right now is in California meeting with drug addicts, homeless, veterans, police, and she's just talking about mental health and how it's important for everyone. And it's been making a big difference. A lot of people are just moved by the book and by the message. And it's interesting because what feels very obvious to me now that I've been in you know, the family I've been in for so long or DBT therapy for so long. It feels very obvious, but whenever you're talking to certain people who've never heard of it, it's been life-changing for them. There was a woman who was in psychosis. She was just gotten out of the psych ward and gotten a divorce and she was doing really bad. And we met with her, gave her DBT therapy. We introduced her to all these other things and she's doing amazing now. She's totally independent. Has a job. She has a boyfriend. Like it's just amazing that it really does help people.
2: Have you noticed that? Uh, that's really cool that your mom is uh, is helping out and lecturing to people and you know working in these groups. And so are you. Have you found that it helps her with her mental condition to help others and be focused on herself? And same for you.
3: Absolutely, it keeps you, you know, kind of in the world of. Hey, these things really do work. So you you never forget it for your own life because as you're working with people, it's so rewarding to see it help them that you're like, yeah, I gotta remember to really keep, you know, taking medicine or going to therapy because it's the thing that changes lives.
2: Yeah, no, that's very cool. What resources do you want to leave people with since we're at the uh, you know the end of the call? Where where can they go to find out more about you and uh, your work?
3: Yeah, so they can go to animpossiblelife.com and see the books and when the next ones are coming out or they can just go to amazon and our book "An impossible life is on amazon
2: okay well very good well rachel thank you for coming and uh you know really being honest and vulnerable with uh you know your situation so thank you
0: yeah thank you if you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on itunes